Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Yeah, good morning, Mercy Commons. My name is Sean. I am uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, Nick is actually away this week. He's been with a, a church in Texas called One Life Church. It's a part of the Advanced Network, which we're a part of, and he's been teaching there uh, at, at their men's camp, and he's preaching there this morning. Uh, he's on a flight back, I think, tomorrow, and we'll be back, uh, we'll be back next week. Um, but this morning, I get the opportunity to kickstart a brand new a brand new series. Grace and Corey you did a great job on the on the graphics. The, it's like so uh, so you know like distorted and messed up and totally appropriate for the book that we're that, that we're going to be uh, looking at together. The last line of this book, the book of Judges, the last line of the book captures the overarching story of the book. It's both an explanation of the tragedy of what happens in this book and the hope of what's coming. And in those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You know, at Mercy Commons, we do a mixture of, uh, if you're new here, we do a mixture of different types of, uh, types of sermon series. Sometimes we do kind of a topical approach like we just finished with our Love One Another series. Um, but we also like to preach through full books of the Bible, trying to kind of balance the Old Testament, the New Testament in, in, in a mixture. We believe that the whole Bible is a consistent story. We believe that the entire scripture speaks and foreshadows uh, what Jesus came, came to do. All of, it is God's, all of it is God's word. Jesus himself quoted and taught from the Old Testament without any reservation or hint of embarrassment uh, whatsoever. Jesus said that he came not to do away with the law or the word, but to fulfill it. He even said that the heavens and the earth would pass away, but his word would not. He's fully committed to his word. However, I think if we're all being a little bit honest, um, that there are parts that we just don't totally get when we read the Bible, right? There's things that are like, oh, what? Um, there are things that make us uncomfortable. There are some stories that maybe offend our kind of modern sensibilities, uh, there are things that God does or seems to do that can maybe leave us like scratching our heads and wondering like, what is going on here exactly? I'm not totally sure about this. The thing though is if God never does anything to make me uncomfortable, if he never challenges my point of view, if he never asks me to step into something I don't understand, then I would have to conclude that I probably don't worship a God bigger than me. I may just be worshiping a God of my own making, one I have constructed in my own image and in my own sight. But we worship a God who is beyond us. I am thankful for that. Who Isaiah says that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. Yet at the same time, he invites us to think with him. The same Isaiah says that God says to us, come, let us reason together. God invites us to know him because he wants us to see the way that he sees and to be like he is. But make no mistake, he's God, we're not. He will not be controlled. His word will not always fit into our box. If Jesus himself believed the scriptures were to be fully trusted and embraced, we would do really well to believe that too. And it's that posture in which we approach this new book. Quick poll, quick poll. How many of you have recently read the book of Judges? <laughs> <laughs> All the hands. I see a few hands there. See if, see if. The reality is this is not high up on the devotional list. Although Jimmy just told me that it is for him. He's like top five book, right? Top, top five. <laughs> it, is, it is not super high up. On, 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 on the devotional list. Now listen, if you're, um, if you're new to Christianity, you've not been to church before and you're wondering why everybody's laughing, let me, I'm, that was an inside joke, let me fill you in on it. The book of Judges is rough. <laughs> it's rough. There's a lot of interesting things in this book that we're, going to, uh, that we're going to be looking at. If you grew up in church and what you remember about the book of Judges is how cool the flannel graph is of... of uh, <laughs> 
of, of Samson, you know, doing his thing like Superman, you know, and flowing hair. Like, you're in for a little bit of a shock. If you think the Bible is just filled with, like, you know, quotes that grandmas put on, like, knitting things, like, you're in for, uh, you're in for a shock. Th- this book, this book should have a parental advisory sticker on it. Um, straight up, uh, it's it's it, it is an NC-17 type of uh, type of book. Um, in this book, a king gets his thumbs and big toes chopped off mafia style right off the bat. In this in this is a story of a judge who takes a small sword and he assassinates a fat king, and it literally says he was a fat king by thrusting the sword gruesomely into the king's bowels while he's using the restroom. Till the hilt, the hilt of the sword goes inside the king. The writer decided to give us that little bit of detail, I, you know. And it says that the fat closed in around the, 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 the sword and other things also came out of the, this gentleman. There is a story in this book, and we will probably talk about it, where a woman takes a tent peg and drives it through the temple of a sleeping foreign soldier. There is some, there's a very confused Israelite judge who tragically and sinfully sacrifices his own daughter by burning her as an offering to the Lord. FYI, God did not ask him to do that. Listen, there's eye gouging, there's murder, there's robbery, there's sexual promiscuity, there's rape, there's the failure of leaders, the corruption of priests, public idolatry, darkness, darkness. Darkness is in the pages of this book. And you might be thinking, well, Sean, what in the world are we looking at it for? If I wanted to see darkness, I could turn the news on. Well, if that's kind of your initial response, you're, you're in good company. There are, there are times, and, and there are times when people have asked, what in the world is this book even doing in the Bible? Is there anything that we can possibly learn from this train wreck? And the answer is, is yeah, there's a lot we can learn from it, like a whole lot. In fact, the fact that the Bible includes train wrecks is one of the reasons I trust it. The fact that it puts on display the failures of even people who are supposed to be leading and it doesn't make any qualms about it is one of the reasons I trust it. This book, this book that we're looking at, not only judges but the entirety of Scripture, it's real, and it deals with reality. Some very gruesome reality, and God's not afraid of it. God's not afraid of it. There's a lot of things that we can learn from the book. So this morning, I want to do, I want to do three kind of things. The first, I want to maybe soften some of the challenges that modern readers might have with this book so that we don't maybe get stuck on some of these harder parts. Um, there, there are some things that help us approach, approach this book. Then I want to focus a, a, a few, uh, on a few topics that this book will teach us if we'll let it. Uh, And finally, I want to land with the hope that this book brings to us. Would you uh, pray with me? Father, um, I ask for your help. Lord, I've prepared, but I ask that you'd speak. Let your voice um, come. Let your word come. Help me to honor the scripture. Help me to do what you want me to do. I am dependent on you. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, each one. I know that you have something for them. Lord, let them hear you. Whatever it is that you want to say to each heart to bring freedom, stability, rescue, correction, help, and growth, I pray that it would be theirs in Jesus' name. Amen. So, where does the book of Judges kind of fit, right? First of all, just like ground us, where in the world this book fits in Israel's story? The book of Judges opens by looking backwards. Uh, and it closes, like I said, by looking forward to, to the king that would, would, would be coming. The words that the book opens with are after the death of Joshua. After the death of Joshua. Okay, so here's where the story, and here's where we're at in the story and the history of Israel. The children of Israel are delivered out of Egypt. Remember that? Moses leads them through the Exodus. God leads his people to go back into the land that he had promised to give to them. And Moses sends this like secret military operation, this, these 12 spies. To, to go into the land to kind of spy it out for 40 days, for 40 days. Hey, guys, go over there, see what's going on, come back and bring us a report. This is in the book of Joshua. 
um, or this is actually way back, this far, farther in the, in, in the Pentateuch. Um, they come back with this stunning report that the land is amazing. It's, it's so fruitful. It, there's real food there. They've been wandering around eating like stuff that grew on the top of the... <laughs> like, there's, there's real food there. It's lush. It's really good. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. However, 10 of the men follow that up with their opinion that there is absolutely no way that they can take the land. The people who live in that land, they are huge. They're huge. They're really strong. They've got fortified military outposts. We got sticks. <laughs> like, uh, we've got no military. We were slaves just a little while ago. It's hopeless. We can't go in there. There's no way we can drive out those people. They're a bunch of wealthy military powerhouses, and we are not. But two of the men, Joshua and Caleb, two of, the, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, the Bible says has a different spirit, and they didn't agree. They saw the same thing the other 10 guys saw, but they essentially said, sure, they're big, and we're small. They have a military. We don't, but we have the Lord. Did you not just see what he already did? Like, this is who we have. We need to go get this done and go get it done now. Let's go. The long story short, the people rebelled against Moses they embraced the fearful words of the 10 faithless men. And so instead of going into the promised land a lot earlier, a lot earlier, God gives them over to the consequences of their decision. And for 40 years, they make a big circle in the desert over and over and over again, wandering in the desert until those 10 men and the people that were with them grew old and passed away, except for Caleb and Joshua, who got to go into the land. This 40 years is coming to an end. It's coming to a close. The children of Israel are finally ready to go into the promised land. Moses is also not permitted to go into the land. He passes away, and the same Joshua who wanted to go into the land 40 years earlier takes over the leadership role from Moses and leads the people into the promised land to begin taking possession of it. Each of the 12 tribes is assigned at different towns and areas as an inheritance but they're not fully settled. They're not fully settled. And the people of the land are still in the land. The Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, all of the ites, right? There's a lot of ites. They've not yet been driven out of the land and Joshua, right before he dies, right before the book of Judges begins, gathers all the people together and he calls them to be faithful to the covenant that they've promised to fulfill and to obey the law of God, to not bow down to the idols of the Canaanites nor make covenants with the people of the land. They're reminded that they must, they must finish the task of tearing down the idols and the pagan altars and slowly drive the people out, all of which, all of which the people of Israel swear that they will do. We will do this. So the book of Judges begins and proceeds to tell the story of Israel's utter failure in doing this. Over and over and over, they, they fail to live up to that oath. They don't drive out the people. They succumb to idolatry. Things get bad. They cry out for help. God raises up an unlikely leader to save them. There's peace for a little while, and then they rebel all over again, and each time getting worse. Darker and darker and farther away from what God intended. That is the context of this book. As I mentioned, modern readers are going to approach this book and have maybe a few questions about it. There's, there's larger questions, both about Judges and Joshua in particular, like, why would a good God send his people to take land that doesn't belong to another nation, belongs to another nation, right? Uh, or how could a God ask his people to wipe out an entire nation of people? That seems a little extreme to our, to, to, to our ears. I've had some of the same questions, and I'd like, to share, I'd like to share kind of a couple of quick thoughts that I think are helpful. They don't answer all of those questions exhaustively, but they are helpful uh, for, for, us to, for us to wrestle with and, and to hear. The first thing is we tend to have kind of caricatures of what's happening rather than a clear picture. This, uh, this is a caricature. <laughs> Anybody know who that is? All my Star Wars nerds? George Lucas. This is George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars. And if you know what George Lucas looks like, you know that this is actually a really great character of him. I'm sure he doesn't think so, but <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, but a character is just that. It's a character. When it comes up, we know who it is. It, it represents them. 
But would you say from this that you have truly seen George Lucas and you know all the detail of how he looks and how he carries himself? You, you, you kind of know George Lucas by looking at this, right? No. <laughs> no. There's, it's George Lucas. I can tell it's George Lucas, but it's kind of distorted. It's kind of twisted. I don't have the complete picture. That, that tends to happen with us as we read things in the Old Testament in particular. We have characters. We have characters of all sorts of things. Um, all sorts of things. Like, we have characters that we don't understand the original language. We don't understand the cultural norms. We don't understand... Like, we approach the book from our modern sensibility, and that's what we read it, and that's how we see it, and, and, and we don't understand the things that are happening, and we tend to, like... We get, a, we get the picture, but it's, it can be slightly distorted, and it's helpful to actually see some of those details to start to clear out our, to clear out our, our caricatures. One of the big characters is the character of the conquest. The fact that God says, hey, I'm commanding you to go in and take this land and, and to drive the people out. Judges chapter 1 verse 17 says this, Then Judah joined with Simeon to fight against the Canaanites living in Zepheth, and they completely destroyed the town. So the town was named Horma, which actually means destruction. I want to ask you, there's all sorts of language like this in Joshua and in Judges, where it's like totally destroyed, utterly given over to destruction. Blah! Is this language literal? I heard recently, and I think we have a photo of this, that John Mark, Jimmy, John Fox, and the help of a ringer from Biola utterly destroyed the competition at the three-on-three -three basketball tournament uh, just, just a few weeks ago, right? Utterly destroyed. <laughs> no. Does that, does that mean... Does that mean does that mean that they killed the other teams, they burned their cars, and they trashed the house? No, it's not. It's not. We actually get this all the time. We use idioms all the time. It's raining cats and dogs outside. Well, it's clearly not. But we, there are not literally cats and dogs falling from the sky. This, this type of use of language uh, is actually not just like what we do. Uh, in the ancient Near East, there was all sorts of uh, idioms that were used for religious conquest and, ba and battle. This is essentially trash talk. It just means they won. They did it. Boom. This happens a lot. You're going to see this a lot. And you're left, as a modern reader, thinking, oh, my word. Wow. They, they did the whole thing. It's like, no, this is, this is, a, this is a, hey, we won kind, 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 of, kind of thing. On top of this, archaeologists have pointed out that the ancient Near Eastern cities, that, that was the primary focus of most of the attacks in Joshua and Judges, were, um, were most likely military outposts. The civilians lived in the villages that are around it. The, the, the cities themselves, for the most part, that's literally what they were, military garrisons. So what you see here is not a genocide of civilians. It's targeted attacks on military outposts that then would help to drive out the other people that, that, that are around. It still brings up questions, but it helps a little bit of realizing like, oh, okay, like we're not just like leveling everything all the time. Which is also the kind of thing, that idea of driving people out. I, it's kind of the last thing I, I want to I focus on before we move on to the things that the book can really teach us, but is the fact that the language that God uses for this conquest over and over again, more than 50 times throughout, throughout, uh, throughout um, the, the uh, book of Moses and Joshua and, and Judges, is to drive the people out, to drive them out. This language makes clear that the goal is not killing these people. The goal is eliminating their idolatry and pushing them out of the land so that their practices would not become a trap for the children of Israel. It was attacking the idolatry. The people were integrated with their idolatry, and God's desire was to push them out. Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars shall utterly destroy those. But you have not obeyed my voice. See, God knows that idolatry out there becomes idolatry in here real quick. 
and he intends to evict the current residents, the current residents of the land, the current tenants, because God is reestablishing, in a sense, a garden, a place for his people to become priests that would eventually turn to serve and bless the whole earth. That is the intention. We see the culmination of that in Christ. This was not genocide. This was judgment on idolatrous and demonic practices and forces. The people needed to go because they were intermingled with those practices, and God knows that if they stay, those same demonic practices are going to hurt his people and ultimately everyone else after that in the grand scheme of redemptive history. Still brings up, there's other questions to wrestle through, but at least for me, it was very, very helpful. There's a couple of great resources. One is Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. Great book. Uh, if you're interested in knowing more about what I just talked about, um, it's a really helpful book. Uh, the, the subtitle of the book I love is The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, and The Hope of Holy War. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> but it's a really helpful, it's a very, very helpful book. It's like refreshing and different and he, he connects to our modern understanding of justice in ways that are just so helpful in understanding what's happening in the Old Testament in particular. So I'd highly recommend and encourage you uh, to, to, to look at that if you're interested. But there are a number of things just on a whole that this book can specifically teach us. And I want to look, look at a few of them. The first one is that without God above us all, things really do spiral out of control. They really do. The last line of the book, and in those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Russian novelist and gulag survivor Alexander Solzhenitsyn put the same idea this way when he discussed how the horrors and the brutality of Soviet communism came to pass. Quote, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. For every atrocity that you see committed by any people, any nation, or any, that, that, is, that quote works. That quote works. When there is no God to judge us, we are our own judge. The time of judges and the time that we live in have some commonalities. Judges was a time where force and tribalism reigned. There was no ultimate moral truth that people obeyed and submitted themselves to. Now, there are some real differences. We are, there are some real differences between their time and, and ours for sure. Um, we have the benefit of being after the cross and, and post, post-resurrection. Um, they, they, they were not. And that has societal impacts as well. But we are slowly kind of returning a little bit to that type of world. And it's due to all sorts of different, uh, all sorts of different things for the last couple hundred years. We've become people who define reality and truth based on our own internal perspectives for the most part. Now, do not get me wrong. I am not trying to say that the era that came before our day was like inherently better or more godly or that we need to go back to something. Every era and time has its own problems and challenges. Everybody screws stuff up somehow. Um, Everybody. Uh, Nobody gets a pass. Uh, I bring this up because... I want, to be, I want us to be wise with the time that we're in and to be discerning and aware of the unique challenges as a disciple of Christ that we face today. They're unique to us today, um, and God will help us with it. You see, ours is a time that though people are really, 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 really not aware of this, that is heavily influenced by Frederick Nietzsche. Now, if you've never heard of Friedrich Nietzsche, he was born in 1844, died in 1900. He's a German-Swiss philosopher whose work didn't become influential really until the 20th century. And now here in our century, it has fully blossomed, fully blossomed. His ideas have fully come alive and integrated into our popular imagination and popular, uh, po- popular language. Part of what he believed was that Truth, in a sense, was impossible. Truth was an impossible idea. That there could only be perspectives and interpretations of truth. And those things are driven by a person's interests in something he called the will to power. What is right in your own sight. Here's a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche. There are only facts, 
I would say no. Facts is precisely what there is not, only interpretations. We cannot establish any fact in itself. Everything is subjective. It is our needs that interpret the world, our drives. There are no such thing as moral facts. Moral judgment has this in common with the religious, that it believes in realities which are not real. Morality is only an interpretation of certain phenomena. Essentially, Nietzsche is saying two things that we see today. First, that truth doesn't exist outside of ourselves. How this works out today is this. I googled the term, quote, live your truth, end quote. And it returned 1,900,000,000 entries in two seconds. I'd like to quote one of the articles for you posted on a mainstream website. The article is called Step Into Your Truth with These Four Simple Steps. Now, I'm not trying to just pick on this. Like, there's actually good things that are in some of these articles as well. But we have to be discerning of the underlying philosophies and thoughts that anchor the things that we're swimming in all the time. Because you're, you and I are in a fishbowl. We're swimming around in water, and it's, and, and it's influenced by things. And those things often happen in, in the academic circles 50, 100 years before. And it comes way up to a bumper sticker now. So, step three from this article, define your truth. This may take a bit of work. In reality, you already know it. But for whatever reason, fear of judgment, previous definitions, or denial, you've buried your truth deep within the abyss. If you stop and listen and feel your inner self, you will become aware of the truths that lay within you. Take the time to think on it, feel it, meditate, or journal your thoughts and feelings. Define your truth and roll with it. Step four, now that you know your truths, live it loudly and proudly. Let no one deny you your truth. Be honest and full in it. Don't hide behind judgment, self or society inflicted or anything else. Your personal truth is just that. It's truth. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not in us. It's in him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 says, By this we can be sure that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If anyone says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. The first commandment, by the way, is trusting him. <laughs> I'm very grateful for that. We live under grace, not under law. So Jesus is not saying, John is not saying, here, jump through all the Ten Commandments and all the hoops. The first thing is to trust in Christ and to know him. That is the first act of faith. That's the first act of obedience. And it says, if people are not doing that, truth is not in us. Because Christ is not in us. And Christ is where truth resides. The second thing that Nietzsche is saying is that if you believe his first point, if you accept that first point, then all there is is power struggle and force. That's it. You don't have to look very far to see that this philosophy drives much of what we hear today in our politics and our discussion on social issues. But we are not disciples of Nietzsche. We are disciples of the one who laid down his life for his friends. We can hold to our points of view. We can be differentiated with one another. We can disagree. Unity does not mean agreement. Yet we must submit ourselves to God's rule in our lives and submit ourselves to what he sees in his eyes. We have, to, we have to, in a sense, embrace and exhibit the wisdom that comes from above, which Nietzsche knew nothing of. The Apostle James tells us that wisdom from above, get this, is first peaceable, gentle, and willing to yield. The wisdom from above it's first peaceable, gentle, and willing to yield. I don't think we'd sell many bumper stickers with that slogan today. Who wants to be peaceable, gentle, and willing to yield? This is the word of God, people. Is that posture reflected in my life, is it? Is it reflected in our lives? Or do we look more like our friends that we see in the book of Judges? 
where we're doing what's right in our own sight. The second thing that this book can teach us is that half-hearted and half-efforts eventually lead to full failure. It doesn't take long in our story to see where the children of Israel begin to doubt and allow a lack of faith in God to creep in, start cutting corners, making some pragmatic decisions, and give half-hearted efforts and adoption of half-measures. Judges chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hands, Judah's hands. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Hey, uh, will you want to come up with me? (laughs) Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we might fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. But God did not say that Simeon should go with Judah. God told the tribe of Judah, I will be with you. I will give them into your hand. Then again, we see in verse 19, a little bit later, and the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, I'm quite sure that when God said he would give them into Judah's hand, he would have been able to deal with the chariots. He dealt with Pharaoh's chariots pretty well. God knows how to deal with chariots. Most commentators agree that the people of Judah made their own common sense and perhaps half-hearted decision here. They saw the chariots, and they decided not to try. They heard for them to go up, and they said, hey, would you come with me? But God would go with them. The writer of Judges makes it really clear these little compromises are contagious. These little kind of like Lack, lack of faith spreads. And from verse 27 to verse 34 in, this, in the first book of Judges, right after this, we see that six more of the tribes of Israel follow Judah and not driving out the people in either of their areas. It's just like one after the next. And they did not do it, and they did not do it, and they did not do it, and they did not do it. Now, I am not advocating against being pragmatic or exercising good common sense. Both of those things are absolutely good and necessary Um, but we have to be aware that there's going to be times in your life and in my life where God is going to ask you to do something that seems to cut against the grain of being pragmatic. He's going to ask you to take a chance to step out and to be obedient. It feels uncomfortable. But anybody who's walked with Jesus for a long time will tell you that time comes. Let's show of hands. Has God ever asked you to do something that seemed a little, eh, I don't know, if I ask 10 other people, they might tell me, you might want to think about that. Right? I'm not saying don't ask 10 other people and weigh that. You've got to do that. But I am saying, what I am saying is it is a life of faith that, 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 that we live. There are things we must fully surrender. A half effort won't do. I think anyone who has dealt with addiction in their own life, I have, and in my family, I've, I've dealt with that as well, understands this. They understand this really well. This is the principle on which the 12-step programs works, uh, or, or doesn't work <laughs> for, for, for some people. And by the way, 12-step programs, I'm a huge fan of them. They're thoroughly, the, the 12 steps are thoroughly biblical. They're, they're really, really, really wonderful. I want to quote you something from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Remember, that we deal with alcohol. You could put the word sin in there. It's pretty, (laughs) works. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at a turning point. We asked for God's protection and care with complete abandon. And here are the steps that we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. And then they march through the 12 steps, talking about the 12 steps. Half measures availed us nothing. If you've ever dealt with a besetting sin, I, the, the cycle of like, bleh, 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 is very, very familiar, is it not? There is a certain surrender that is required in our life of faith. There's a certain surrender to the God who can rescue that's required and a certain surrender to then take action and steps that align with his will to help us. 
The stakes around this issue are not just about uh, not accomplishing something that God wants you to accomplish, right? The stakes around this issue of half, half efforts is, uh, is a lot bigger because it can lead to full-blown, full-blown failure. We see that when we pick up in Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. This is chapter two. <laughs> it's not very far in, in, into, into the book. And we see that those half measures that started with Judah saying, hey, will you come with me? Uh, I don't know that we can take the chariots out. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to do it either. I'm not going to do it either. I'm not going to do it either. I'm going to eat a full-blown, we're worshiping ball. Wow, that was fast. A third thing that this book can teach us is that God's judgment, God's judgment is actually merciful and it's meant to bring us back. There is a cycle in the book of Judges. The people rebel, God's angry, God hands them over, and they experience oppression by their enemies. They cry out in repentance and sorrow. God raises up a judge to rescue them. They experience relief, and then after a while they rebel again, and this time it gets a little worse. Judges chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. We can see this cycle in Israel's life, and I have seen this cycle in my own life at varying degrees. This is a thoroughly human uh, thing that's, that, that's happening here in this book. We must be careful that we do not take God's faithfulness for granted, thinking that we never, uh, that, that um, we have kind of like a divine parachute. Yeah, I mean, like I can just kind of do whatever I want to do and uh, yeah, God will always be faithful, he'll always rescue me. Galatians 5.13 says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Brothers and sisters, God is absolutely faithful, but that does not mean he will always stop us from putting our life in the ditch. When we turn to him, when we turn to him, even from the ditch, he is always there to pick us back up and pull us out. He's incredibly faithful. But he's not mocked. Consequences come with our choices. Sometimes we don't bear the weight of those right away, God is really merciful. I, I have not borne the immediate weight of terrible consequences, terrible choices that I've made. God's kind, unbelievably kind. But he's also a good father. He's a good dad. He's not just a judge, he's a dad. And he will allow us to hit reality when we make poor choices. Because that's one of the ways that we really learn. And it gives us an opportunity to grow. The writer of Hebrews captures this idea when he writes, For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. This is not mean. This is not divine child abuse. This is not rage. This is not rage against our stupidity. This is rooted in the desire that God has for us to be well and to be with him, and to become like him. That's why he's angry. That's why he's angry with Israel. He's jealous for her. He's a jealous God, but God is, God is his jealousy is not like yours and mine. Jealousy for us is this distinct fear of losing something we want or we need, or not getting something we want or think we need. It reveals, our jealousy reveals a lack in us, a deficiency that animates our feelings, a fear of not having that includes everything from relational things, like a parent's affection or 
the commitment of my spouse to tangible things like a house or a vacation. But God has no lack. He has no deficiency. His personhood is not dependent on you or on me. Thank God for that. I'm so grateful for that fact. He is not dependent. His personhood is not dependent on possessing or controlling anything. He's completely secure. Thoroughly secure. God's anger and jealousy is an extension of the purity of his love. It's not grasping to fill a need in himself. It's giving to draw, into, draw us into what he knows is good and right for us. When we see the Lord respond to Israel that way and give her over, there is this push and pull where you see God saying, I will be faithful to my covenant and I am angry with you and then this is gonna, ha- this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, this happens. There's this reality that God is moving and shaping us to become for us in Christ, like his son. There's going to be times where we make huge mistakes. God will be with us in it. We will experience pushback, but God is always faithful. He is a good father. I don't know how many of you have experienced negative consequences in your life from poor choices, and you met God, you met God at the bottom of that hill. I bet if I asked for hands, I would see a lot more hands than read the book of Judges. <laughs> This is the reality of the, of the truth of, of, of the gospel. Band, you guys, can, you guys can actually join me back up here. In the end, in the end, this book, this book of Judges, the one that we're going to be marching through and looking at these, in, in, these stories, it is absolutely good news. It's good news not so much about what Israel did or didn't do. Um, it's good news because God's faithful. And God knows what he's doing. In the pages of this book, in the pages of this book, we see the unrelenting patience and long-suffering of God. We're standing in it, guys. Like, if God was like you and me, in some of these stories, he would have been like, who needs it, man? I'm done with these people. I'll start over. I'll do something different. Like, this is not worth it. God is not like you and me. And we're standing here today, and our story, your story, is connected to this story. This is from where it comes from. In God's long view of faithfulness, he's able to come up to you as an individual to be faithful. And he also knows what he's doing in human history. And he's wise, and he's a whole lot smarter than any of us. He doesn't throw out the promises that he made to Israel. Hosea chapter 11, verses one through nine, shares a little bit of God's heart with this tension, but you hear the father heart of God in this, of Israel being like terribly unfaithful and really messing things up and like, ah. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the further they went from me. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals, and they burned incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I taught him to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with bands of human kindness, with cords of love. I treated them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They will, they, they will return to the land of Egypt and Assyria will be their king, unfortunately, because they have refused to return to me. The sword, will strike, will, the sword will strike wildly in their cities. It will consume the bars of their gates and will take everything because of their schemes. You hear the frustration and the hurt in, in God's voice. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they cry out to the Most High, he will not raise them up. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart winces within me. My compassion grows warm and tender towards you. 
I won't act on the heat of my anger. I won't return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a human being. The Holy One in your midst, I won't come in harsh judgment to you. We are recipients of that promise. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us to our own way. And God has laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all so that this could be true of each and every one of us, that God would say, I will not come in the heat of my anger to you. I won't return to destroy you. That's not my heart. I am God. I am not a human being. I am not like your earthly parents. I'm not like other people who hurt you. I am good. I know what I'm doing. I want you to be with me. I will help you. I will restore you. I will rescue you. You can put your hope in me. I am the only one that you can trust in that way. This is the word of God to us. This is the word of God to us. We are the recipients. We are the recipients of people who can now say that we can see. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The king has come. The king has come. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child was born, to us a son was given, and the government, the government is upon his shoulders, and his name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there is no end. And on the throne of David and over his government and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forevermore. The zeal of the Lord has accomplished this, and we are beneficiaries of it. Brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you need a rescuer, there is one. This book, one of the things that's so encouraging to me about this book is we see everybody screw up. Everybody. And it's like God still uses these people. And by the way, some of these people we're going to read about, they're not heroes, but they show up later in like the book of Hebrews as, as pictures of faith. If God's going to use them, he can use me. He can use you. God is the one who's faithful. We are not. We get to come to this table. We come to this time. We come to this word to, to say, God, you're the one who's faithful. I throw myself on you. I trust you. Have my life. Help me. And he does. Amen. So when I think of what Sean was talking about and people being right in their own sight, I mean, we see the whole book of Judges. Um, in that era, they're doing that, and we're still doing it now. And it's kind of discouraging. Like, when are, when are things going to change? When are we going to realize um, this isn't what God has for us? Um, so I think the two ways that we can combat that is to redirect our sight to God through the truth of the gospel and then to have community walk through that with us and to be participants in community so that we can continually remind each other um, of those truths. So I wanna take communion, uh, which we have communion tables all around the room, and take it with somebody this morning as a reminder of, um, take communion as a reminder of redirecting your sight on the truth of um, what the Father has given us through Christ and then participating in community as a way to remind each other of that. If you need prayer individually, there will be people to the side um, that will pray for you. And there's two, Jeannie and Pat had two things that they wanted to share more specific um, for individuals. So I'm going to have them share real quick, and then we'll go ahead and do that. Yeah, so I was um, just thinking about the idea of speaking your truth and how there's like a half-truth in that, that the pain you experienced is very real and God wants wants to bring healing there but it's also not the truest thing about you and the the truth that we're that our culture is, is saying to share is actually a judgment that's been made based off of a really very real experience but I believe God wants to break those judgments and give you freedom in that so um, Al and I will be on the side to pray for you 
Um, and then earlier this week, I was listening to the radio, and there's a DJ that was interviewing an artist, and she was kind of talking about the inspiration to her album, and she was saying it really is just based on surrender, and just kind of surrendering during these last two years. But she didn't really say, like, to what? Like, she just meant, like, surrendering to, like, fate, to, like, life, like, this force. And I was like, that, she made it sound inspirational, but I was like, that is sad. That is so sad. Like, surrendering to, to nothing, just, like, chance and people and circumstances. And I was just so struck by the fact that we get the chance to surrender to a God who loves us and a good, good father. And I was just so reminded by that today that the people in Judges, they kept going in the cycle because they just didn't surrender and, and, and give themselves over to the Lord. And that quote from the, um, the, the AA book of just like, you're at a point and you have a choice to completely give up to Jesus and give yourself up to who he is. And, and you'll stop that cycle. That's when it breaks, when you surrender, when you give up. So I just, I just felt strongly today, like with that word of surrender, that maybe there's some people who are at that point and thinking, I don't know if I wanna give up, but they're in that cycle. And so if you wanna surrender, whatever that is, um, I would love to pray for you for that. Thank you. So if either what Pat said or Jeannie said uh, resonates with you, still grab communion and take it with them and pray with them. And then the rest of us take communion with someone in your aisle. Um, and, and I will bring us back and close us. God, we thank you that um, we don't need to rely on our own sight or our own vision. And we acknowledge that we get distracted and um, put our sight on things that are of not, not of you. But we thank you for community and we thank you for your gospel that redirects us to the vision that you have for us and, and the things you have intended for us. So we pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.